Well, I wonder if it feels like to you that we're on the downside of Christmas now. Anybody feel that way? If so, just think about those shepherds as they returned from their Christmas, that exhilarating experience of seeing the one who'd been announced by angels, the promised Savior, Christ the Lord. But Scripture says they had to go back to their fields after that. You remember, they had to go back to their shepherding, chasing the strays, caring for the little lambs, defending the flock from wild animals, doing the shearing, the cleaning, the doctoring, putting up with the cold nights outside. What do you think? Did they go back different because of that experience of seeing the baby at Bethlehem? Could they ever be the same after that angelic vision they had? Scripture does say that they took their rejoicing with them, doesn't it? There's a lesson for us. It says they went back glorifying God. And surely their outlook on life had been changed forever, don't you think? That's what Christmas should mean for us, shouldn't it? We don't have the same old outlook as we used to. And besides that, Scripture says they told everybody that they met about the one they had seen. Another great example for us. But you know, those shepherds still had to work out what this baby's birth really meant to them in practical terms. Like how it was actually going to affect their shepherding. What difference would it make? That the Savior had been born. How would that impact their daily living? Well, of course, you know, in Spain, we're not really on the downside of Christmas yet, are we? We're only on the seventh or eighth day of Christmas, depending on how you count. Some people count a full day. Some people say the first day starts the eve of the 25th. So we might be on the seventh day of Christmas. My true love gave to me. What was it? Seven swans are swimming. Come on, seventh day. Or eighth day. Eight maids of milking. Somebody knows the carol. All right. Well, seventh or eighth day between Christmas Day and Epiphany, of course, is what we're counting there. It's what the church since the Middle Ages has been celebrating as the 12 days of Christmas, which Figure this, it was actually the time they imagined that it took the wise men to arrive in Bethlehem. That's what they imagined. Well, can you imagine if those wise men had been riding across that desert with children who would have been asking every other mile, are we there yet? <laughs> How much farther? How much longer? Brings to mind a good biblical question that we do tend to ask. How long? Oh, Lord. We used to ask right after Christmas, how long till the next Christmas? <laughs> As if we just lived from one Christmas to the other. How long? Oh, Lord. Do you relate to that question? 
a new year in an old world that's far from new can really bring that question to mind. It was frequently asked by the psalmists, and I wonder how much this question resonates with you because its application is manifold. How long in regard to suffering or in regard to some illness somebody may have or some pain that they're suffering with? How long? Or this persecution or this war? Maybe somebody's mind immediately goes to the Ukraine. How long are we going to have to put up with this war? It hasn't even been a year yet. Mm, how much longer will, it have to endure, will we have to endure it? Will they, who are suffering it on the front line, how much longer? How much longer will the injustices in this world just continue to multiply? How much longer? How long this loneliness or whatever other kind of trials we may be going through? How much longer will I have to suffer this unanswered prayer? Maybe that's your burden. It was Habakkuk's prayer. Remember him from the 7th century? The prophet who said to God, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Was Habakkuk on target? Was God not listening? Okay, we're afraid of that question. <laughs> we're afraid of what to do with it. Well, you should know from the rest of the Bible, God is always listening, right? Okay, God is listening. How does Habakkuk feel? He feels as if God is not listening, as if God is not there, okay? God allowed the biblical writers sometimes to express their feelings in terms of these rhetorical questions that are not expressing heavenly truth. God is always listening, but Habakkuk didn't feel like it. And God said, it's okay. You can, you can get your question out there. How long, O oh Lord, must I call for help but you do not listen? Did you ever feel like that? There's a biblical phrase for you. I, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. That's how Habakkuk felt. In fact, that how long question becomes a standard refrain in Israel, we find it again and again in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 13. David really got into this question, didn't he? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Had God forgotten him? It's what we call a rhetorical question. It's how David felt, right? How long will you hide your face from me? Had God hidden his face from him? Okay, some of you are getting the hang of this. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. It does not express objective truth. It expresses how I feel. You're hiding your face from me. God doesn't hide his face from us, not literally. How long must I wrestle? How, must I, how long must I wrestle? Okay, take the take out. <laughs> how must, long must I wrestle with my thoughts and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long will my enemy gloat over me? Okay, the interesting thing about Psalm 13, he's really stuck on the how long mode right here. But by verse 6, the end of the psalm, he's worked through it. When you take it to the Lord and dump it in his lap, he will hear you out and he will help you work through it. 
to the light. We got that? So, but that's, that's your assignment. You'll have to go back and read Psalm 13 and see how David actually works through that and, and gets over it. But let's check out a few more how longs. Like Psalm 35, it's David again. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages, as if God were just sitting on his hands while David got ravaged, right? Or then we move on to Asaph. He had a lot of how long questions about is the foe to scoff forever or in Psalm 79, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? And then we move on to Psalm 80, still Asaph. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Do you ever feel like God is angry with your prayers? Or Psalm 90, this is Moses, you should recognize. He just asks, how long? <laughs> how long do I have to put up with these people? Might have been his implicit question. Uh, and then Psalm 94, we don't know who wrote that one, but how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Wow, lots of how longs. Do you ever ask the how long question? I hope so, because even Jesus asked this question on occasion. Remember when he called them an unbelieving generation? How long will I remain with you? How long shall I put up with you? Do you feel like Jesus was frustrated? Maybe a little bit. That's not a sin, is it, to get frustrated? <laughs> Do you ever pray, oh, please don't, don't give up on me, Lord. <laughs> Keep putting up with me. <laughs> don't get too frustrated with me because I'm a bit frustrating sometimes. The ancient Jews lived awaiting the day of their Messiah. Not just year after year or decade after decade, but century after century. How long, O oh Lord? In fact, the same way the whole world was actually awaiting the coming of the universal king. Now, that was the case of the wise men. That's what they were waiting for. Those wise men who unwittingly tipped off old Herod that he had a rival who had just been born nearby. Well, these wise men had been studying the stars probably most of their lives. And they likely knew well the biblical prophecy about a king who would be born among the Jews, a messianic savior. And they knew this because of the time that the Jews spent in exile in Babylon. So this rare combination of astrological events suggested to these studious stargazers a royal birth in the house of David. Now, the biblical problem is the question of the historicity of the wise men's story. Is it historically reliable? For a long time, a standard convention, conviction of modern biblical scholarship has been that the Magi story is just the invention of the early church. Much Scholarly work is done in that, to that effect. Frankly, I raise the how long question regarding biblical scholarship sometimes. How long do we have to put up with the, their skepticism and their doubts and their ridicule in regard to the truthfulness of scriptural testimony? Mm, one scholar, Raymond Brown, in his book, The Birth of the Messiah, actually confesses that among New Testament scholars, the slightest suggestion 
that you think perhaps there really were some wise men who came to Bethlehem, to, to confess that is to write your own professional obituary. Hmm. He says if you want to be taken seriously, you just toe the party line. Just chuckle condescendingly to anyone who suggests that the Magi were historical and move on. Because to confess you'd like to understand better who those wise men were would be like telling an English professor that you're on the search for the historical Peter Pan. Did he really exist? So to counter that, in his book, in The Mystery of the Magi, the quest to identify the three wise men, Dwight Longenecker takes on the skeptics. Here's another biblical scholar. Seeking to undermine the assumption that the Magi story was just a fabricated fable. Also seeking to undermine the idea that it doesn't matter anyway. It does matter. And I hope you know it does. Longenecker found that to cut through the prejudice of biblical scholars is not easy because legend is the politically correct word. It's a legend. That's what they say about it. And it's understandable why many would treat the Magi story as fable because after the New Testament, this particular story, more than any other biblical account, has been embellished and elaborated over the centuries and, you know, decorated with more details, the extra biblical details. So it's made to look legendary in the folklore. So Longenecker has dedicated himself to a study of the politics, religion, history, culture, economics, and conflicts of first century Palestine to see how those characters who have become for us mystical, magical wizards from a faraway land, how they actually might have been ordinary men on an extraordinary mission to another kingdom and truly on a mission to find the Messiah. They were on a spiritual journey. Still, we have to apply our application question to these magi. Specifically, how did their long journey affect their lives from that point? Didn't they also have to work out the meaning of what they saw in their everyday life? As they went back home, didn't they also have to work it out just like the shepherds did? Just like you and I do? This quest for the historicity of the New Testament is more important than most people think. Because the attempt to turn the Gospels into nothing more than meaningful fairy stories has become the default setting, not only among academics, but quite frankly, among most people in secular society today. So why is this important? Why is it important? Because history is important. We distinguish the Gospels from legend, from myth, because it describes things that really happened. 
It's what God really did in history that impacts you and me. The legends, the myths, no. So the historicity of the Gospels is a very important issue. And the approach we should take is not to assume that the Gospel stories are fictional fables, but rather to assume, first of all, that they are historical because the writers, the authors, present them as personal testimony of what they have experienced. You follow? They're writing history. They don't give the impression at any point that this is fantasy, or this is fiction, or they can, they're adding some details to embellish it. And there are good reasons to believe these guys. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, your faith is at stake here on this issue of history. All right. You're very quiet, but I assume you're getting it, okay? Besides that, there are certainly no doubts in the scholarly world about Herod's existence. Nobody questions whether he lived, because that's well documented, as is his wickedness. Oh, the people he put to death. Even his favorite wife at one point, and eventually his heirs by that wife. Wow. So it's pretty easy to believe Matthew's made-up story about the babies that he killed? Yeah, nothing made up about that. In fact, Matthew certainly got it right about him. Every brushstroke of his story. So Herod brings up the question again of how long we have to put up with bad rulers in this world. Because they just keep multiplying, don't they, down through history in every period in every country right down to today. And we're not going to name any names, are we? <laughs> all right. But all these rulers who really show no statesmanship, no true concern for the people, just whet our appetite for the one true king who is worthy. And when he comes... No, that's not right. He already came, didn't he? Yes. He already came. And he already invited us to live under his rule. Did he not? But here's our problem. Once he comes, lives, dies, is resurrected, and ascends to heaven, we're back to the waiting game, aren't we? 2,000 years worth now, almost. It's like we've started over again, waiting now for the second coming. And how many times have Christians jumped the gun on that one? Saying, oh, this is it. He's almost here. It's right around the corner. Mm, yeah, but it wasn't. You know? And somebody says, oh, but this time it's different. Just look at how all the signs are coming together. This time is different. Okay. Are we talking about next week? Or, or, or next year? Or, or maybe this year? Yeah, we just started this new year. Maybe this year? Or, or next year? Yeah, okay. Within my lifetime? Uh, maybe not. You're kind of old. Okay, gotcha. Well, within your lifetime then. You're so young. Yes. 
Okay, maybe within your lifetime. So are we talking about this century? Well, uh, okay, so it could be next century. Okay, uh, so you're going to live a long time, huh? <laughs> yeah. Mm. We really don't know, do we? The signs multiply and multiply, and actually those are the signs that say, but the end is not yet. Terremotos, what do you call those? Earthquakes and the plagues and the famines and the. Uh, but those were signs that the end is not yet. Oh, okay. So we really don't know. And all of these guys who have written eloquently and tried to elucidate the subject, I'm sure they have plenty to say to us. But they don't know either, do they? The Son of Man, when he was here, said. Even the Son of Man does not know. And you're going to try to outguess the Son of Man? Not good business. We don't know how long it will be. We don't know how long this world is going to continue groaning and groaning and groaning. I assume you watched the news this past week, the reviews of 2022. You're aware of all the groaning. So it all comes down to this. The king has come. In fact, we call him Emmanuel, God with us. We call him Deus pro nobis, God for us. And if we confess and follow him, he is God in Christ, in us, and even Yahweh Nisi, he's God over us. And his banner over us is love. So after we have understood all that Christmas really means, the task is now to apply it, to work it out in the details. And don't get stuck in the how long mode because the groaning is going to continue. Paul says it in Romans 8. Creation is groaning, and we too are groaning, and the Holy Spirit Himself is groaning with intercession too deep for words. The groaning will continue, and our, our question is not how long. Our question is how do we work out what God has worked in? It's about developing patience in our walk with the Lord, not despising the trials He allows into our lives. They're tools in His hands. Not fretting over how long this particular trial is going to last because we are all on a journey. We're all on a spiritual journey. And the point is to help and encourage each other along the way, isn't it? So that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. And what matters is how you face your trials and tribulations this year. How you apply your faith in Him to those Difficulties, those adversities, those opportunities, those challenges. Because developing the patience of Christ is a matter of learning to work out what he worked in. You really believe Christ is coming back? Even though we don't know the timing? The way to show it is by learning to work out what Christmas means practically every day of the new year. We got it? That's what, that's what Christmas is supposed to be about. Not just 
a one-time celebration for a couple of weeks in December. It's supposed to impact how we go back to the fields, to the shepherding, how we return home back east or wherever that is, how we go back to our routine. There's a word in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, that to some has seemed like it was contradictory, but it's a paradox. It says, why don't you read it with me? Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to act on behalf of his good purpose. Two truths are joined together here. Mm. You have to work out what God worked in. And if these two truths are separated, they can easily become the battle cry of opposing theologies. This is not about God does his part, I do mine. No, that's, that's not it. It's not like uh, salvation is a matter of halvesies. He does his half, I do my half. No, no, no. But the Bible knows no unpractical theology and no untheological morality. We'll unpack that, okay? I liked the phrase because it was my dad's, all right? No untheologic, no unpractical theology. That means all theology is practical. Everything that God reveals in his word has a way to put it into practice. It has a practical effect on your life. If you're looking for it, if you're asleep, you won't find it. You won't get it and you won't practice it. All theology is practical. All biblical theology. And morality, that's how we treat one another, how we relate to each other, whether we do it the right way, whether we love our neighbor as ourselves. There is no true morality that does not come out of what God reveals about himself and about us. So all morality is theological. Okay, so that means our salvation has been fully accomplished, and yet we've got to work it out in the practical details of our lives. Jesus said it on the cross, didn't he? He said, it is finished. Likely his last word. He had defeated sin because he never fell in that pit and he forgave all the sin that was committed against him. He had defeated it in a human life, in human history. He had defeated the principalities and powers he never submitted to them. He never gave in to their temptations. He demonstrated fully that they were a farce. They had no power over him. He had demonstrated it. He defeated sin. He defeated the principalities and powers. Only death remained. And he was about to swallow it up in victory. Because as he went through that door, death had no more chance against him. He was the victorious Lord and he went there to declare his sovereignty and then to break down the doors and come back out for our sakes. So salvation is utterly God's work. It, we have nothing to do with it. But we do have to receive it and work it out. And that word in the Greek from ergazomai is based on a root word that means work. There's some work to be done here. Are you ready for it? Because 2023... 
needs you to be ready to work if you're going to grow as a Christian, if you're going to have a testimony that's fruitful. In fact, the text says, work out your own salvation. This is personal. What's particular to you, your specs. Because saving grace includes more than just deliverance from the condemnation of sin. It includes also deliverance from the power of sin. That's what God wants for you. But that requires your cooperation. In other words, you have to apply the faith given in Christ to the particular budding and sprouting that sin has manifested in your personal life. Did you ever think of your sin like that? Seeds of, un, of sinfulness in my heart that sprout. And take advantage of every life opportunity for our ego to be established as the prime mover and reason for being and true king. That's our default mode. Idolatry is our default mode. That means worshiping our own comfort, our own convenience, our own image, our own preferences. And the seeds of that idolatry grow everywhere in the soil of our life. We need to be aware of that. Jesus said the only remedy for this problem that all of us have was cross-bearing. That's it. That's the only thing. He said it. Then if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's a radical solution. It's the only one that works. So your cross is peculiarly your own. You dealing with your struggles, your defects, your deficiencies, your obsessions, your difficult relationships, your quirks, your hang-ups, your problems, your burdens, your background issues, etc. You have to apply the cross of Christ to all of those different areas. Work out your salvation in every one of those areas if you're going to be a conscientious follower of Christ. Now, if you're satisfied being a cultural Christian, you can tune me out. Anybody satisfied being a cultural Christian? I know, you wouldn't raise your hand even if you were. <laughs> but it's to provoke you to think about this. As we work on this, to work it out, God is there to help. Because it's actually God who is at work in us as we do this. Maybe you've heard that story of the gardener who took a rocky piece of ground and transformed it into this lovely flower garden. A pious friend of his walking by said, Oh, it's so wonderful what you and God have done here. To which the man replied, Oh, yeah? You should have seen it when God had it to himself. Well, it's a bit uh, impious what the man responded. A bit blind, in fact, because the beauty that God creates, nothing can compare with it. And whatever beauty you and I are able to add, it's thanks to Him because He provides all the raw materials. He provides the project. He provides the energy and the intellect to do something valuable with it. 
And when you apply that to your own life project, your problems and needs, when you set your sights on something that needs to be fixed in your life, is there anything? You're all good? Oh, wow. Why did you come here this morning? <laughs> yeah. No, when you fix your eyes on something that needs fixing, it's because God has put his finger on it first, convicting you by the Holy Spirit, who is, by the way, there by your side to help you with this. He is not only your hope of glory, he's also your only hope of transformation. And that should be the goal of every Christian, to be transformed into the image of Christ. So if you experience any improvement in your character, it is actually God who is at work in you, both to will and to act on behalf of his good purpose. God is at work. Notice that phrase. It's based on the Greek energein. What do you hear in that word? Energy. Yes, you hear energy. That's the same root. It's God's energy. It's working in you. And working for what? Well, to will and to act. And guess what? You get that word again, the second word there. Philane is talking about your will. God is in you to enable your will. Voluntad in Spanish. To enable your will to want what God wants, because that's what's best. And then to energize you to do what God wants you to do on behalf of his good purposes. On behalf of his good purpose. It's the Greek, eudokia, which is in fact the same word used in Luke 2.14 where it says peace on earth, goodwill to men. That goodwill is this same word. This is on behalf of his good will. What he wills is good. And that's what he's at work to produce in you and to get you to use his energy to work toward so that you can actually work this out. And how are you supposed to work it out? What did it say? With fear and trembling. What is faith if it's not the admission of our own helplessness? This is what we confess before God continually. We are helpless to do what needs to be done. Please do it in us. Energize us with your power so that we will do what you know is best for us. And so we, we go to the cross and we cancel our fleshly self-confidence there. And in its place, we learn to rely on his grace and his power to accomplish what he wants in us. So fear and trembling. What am I supposed to fear? Well, Scripture says fear God above all, doesn't it? That's what we're to fear. He's the ultimate one to whom we must give account. That's the beginning of wisdom, Scripture says. But the specific here, fear here is that self may not completely yield to the one who's at work in us. Oh, what if myself holds out as it has so many times? Remember Jeremiah's word that the heart is deceitful above all things and perverse. Jeremiah 17. Oh, that's the people in the, out there, right? No, no. That's the people right here gathered this morning. That's my heart and yours. Perverse and deceitful. My fear is that I may be deceived again by my own heart my own flesh. I give it to you, Lord. 
by fear. The fear that I may be a hindrance to the good work God wants to do in and through me. Oh, Lord, that's why the only solution is crucifixion with you. I'm crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You see, fear and trembling are necessary for me to be truly discontent with my old self. Otherwise, I will justify, rationalize, and think, well, I was the one who was right anyway. Why did they act that way? Uh, Yeah, we do that, don't we? Yeah, it's also part of our mm, automatic mode to excuse ourselves, to justify ourselves. So fear and trembling are actually the fruit of knowing the depths of my own sinful idolatry. How deeply do you know your tendency toward idolatry? You remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? We finish with this. Don't worry. (laughs) They received the promise of a son. I'm not going to recount the whole story because you know it. But through that son, God was going to bless all the families of the earth. But after so many years of waiting, Abraham and Sarah saying, How long, O Lord? How long? They were getting old. 99 and 100? Oof. They decided to, they decided they needed to intervene. They decided they needed to take matters into their own hands and fix this situation instead of waiting on the Lord. And you remember their solution was not great, was it? Lesson for us, keep letting the Holy Spirit develop the patience of Christ in you because that's what he wants to do. That way you won't lose your taste for cross-bearing. Cross-bearing. That's what we're called to every day. And you can't ever say, oh, I'm tired of bearing this cross. <gasps> You're what? You're tired of your Savior? <laughs> Think about it. Think about it carefully. Because no solution of ours will ever match His. Are you with me? The solution he offers us is the good solution, even though it sounds painful. It is painful sometimes. Taking up your cross, dying with Christ. This is what I want to challenge you to in this first trimester of the new year. A series of sermons on growing toward maturity in Christ. Because too many Christians stop short, decide, oh, I've got what I wanted out of Christianity. I'm I'm basically there, right? No, not right. You're not there yet. There's a long way to go. How long? I don't know. Only God knows. But it, it, it can get long. As you return to your routine in this new year, will you determine to take your Christmas rejoicing with you? Will you determine to work out what God has worked in? Will you determine to grow, to set your sights on maturity? What would that look like in my case, in my circumstances? Christ's maturity, 
His Holy Spirit bearing fruit in my life and my relationships. What would that look like? Will you dream with me this morning that Christ might fulfill that potential in us? And I'm proposing to different preachers in our congregation to help me with this so you won't only hear my voice about how we're going to grow toward maturity because I think we need a plurality of perspectives God's word here to help us grow. I'm going to take this goal seriously. I hope and pray you will. Will you pray with me? Blessed Savior, we have celebrated your coming and the celebration has been beautiful. It has truly been Christ-honoring as we have worshipped around your crib, your cradle, the manger, as we have remembered how it always points forward to the cross, as it teaches us your presence with us, your presence for us, in us, over us. Holy Savior, we've celebrated your coming. Now help us to work it out in our daily lives. We need your Holy Spirit to give us courage to face who we are and who we still need to be by growing toward maturity in you. Accompany us, Lord Jesus. Speak to us. Speak through us. Mold us into your image day by day in this new year that we may be your agents of peace, joy, truth, your Christ-centered cross-centered gospel. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.